The following message was given at Grace Community Church in Minden, Nevada. All right, so uh, over the last number of weeks, we've been doing uh, basics of biblical counseling. And then last week, what we did is we started um, on counseling marriage problems. And if, um, if you're married and you didn't get a chance to hear that, you probably should. Um, and today what we're going to do is we're going to talk a little bit about how to resolve marriage conflict. And then we're going to do Pilgrim's Progress for 16 weeks. And if that doesn't cure all your marriage problems, I don't know what will. And then we will pick back up with some of these themes uh, after we're done with, uh, with Pilgrim's Progress. And so what I'd like you to do is take your Bibles and turn to James chapter 4. James chapter 4. James 4, uh, 1 through 3, what is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. You're envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have, because you do not ask. So let's pray. Father, we do ask that you would use our, our time to uh, help us. Lord, help uh, equip us to help others whose marriages may be in trouble. And we pray, Father, for those whose marriages are in trouble, that you would use uh, this time uh, to help them, to do good to them. In Jesus' name, amen. So, <clears throat> What can make a marriage miserable is not just simply conflict. So in a fallen world, conflict is unavoidable. You understand that, right? If If you're a sinner and you're married to a sinner, conflict is unavoidable, right? Just as sure as within the body, conflict is unavoidable. It's not, the, it's not the, the presence of conflict itself that makes a marriage miserable. It's actually unresolved conflict that makes a marriage miserable. Um, I would say that conflict is not always bad. Okay? So most of the time, conflict is bad because it, it, it comes from bad motives and so forth. But conflict is not always bad in, in, in the sense that God can do a number of things through conflict. Right? Uh, let me just throw out a few things for you that God can do through conflict. Um, God may actually use conflict to expose sin. Right? And that could end up having a good result. Um, can conflict actually help strengthen a relationship? Of course it can. If you work through the conflict, your relationship is then strengthened. 
um, conflict can bring about certain solutions. So think of the conflict in Acts chapter 6 between the Hellenistic widows and the Hebrew widows, and the, and the Hellenistic widows are being overlooked in the service of food. And so there was a conflict in the early church. And what was the result of that conflict? Well, it was the establishment of the diaconate so that the apostles could devote themselves to prayer and the ministry of the word, right? So there was a good, there was a, a good remedy that came out of the conflict. One thing that we forget about is that, that conflict always provides us with a redemptive opportunity. When conflict happens, it gives us an opportunity to do what? Well, it gives us opportunity to put into practice the biblical principles of love and wisdom and repentance and forgiveness. In other words, just like when you're raising your kids, right? Their disobedience provides a redemptive opportunity, right? Right? I mean, you don't just, you don't just, you know, just smack your kid because they, they, they disobeyed, all right? Um, you use that as a redemptive opportunity, and that's what it is. It's an opportunity. Conflict does the same thing. In, in marriage, is, there's an opportunity. There's an opportunity for what? To be able to demonstrate love to one another. There's the opportunity to be able to exhibit wisdom from above, not from below. There's the opportunity to actually put the gospel to work in repentance and forgiveness, right? So, so don't think of, of conflict as just purely negative. There actually can be a number of things that come from conflict that are very good. But unresolved conflict not only brings misery, but then turns around and then breeds a whole bunch of other sins, so what we're saying is, is that it's not the conflict in and of itself that, that makes a marriage miserable. It's unresolved conflict. And so stop and think about what happens when, when conflict is, is unresolved. Um, what, what are some of the sins that, 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 in a sense, grow in the soil of unresolved conflict? Unforgiveness. Is unforgiveness a sin? Of course it is. What about bitterness? Does bitterness grow in the soil of unresolved conflict? Absolutely. Um, does, does unresolved conflict um, um, produce a breakdown in communication? Right? If you have unresolved conflict, it's actually really hard to have a heart-to-heart conversation about anything as long as that conflict is, is looming over you. What about just anger? When you see somebody that is an angry person, you actually are looking at a person that typically has several unresolved conflicts in their life, right? Um, we mentioned bitterness. What about hardness of heart? What about disaffection? What do I mean by disaffection? I mean, actually, the, 
um, it, it's, it's related to hardness of heart, but, but disaffection means that your, your love is growing cold. Is it easy for your love to grow cold with somebody that you've got an unresolved conflict with? By the way, these are no-brainers, right? You you can actually expound all of these themes just by human experience. In marriage, when you have unresolved conflict, not only do you have disaffection, you also can have distance. Um, You can... You can have a sexually dysfunctional marriage. And you have to understand that if, if the sexual intimacy between a husband and a wife is what deepens bonds of affection, actually sexual dysfunction c- continues to then deepen disaffection. And of course, there's abuse that can result from unresolved conflict, and by that I mean abusive speech or physical abuse. And sometimes unresolved conflict can even give birth to adultery. Yeah. So, I want to say that as Christians... In marriage, unresolved conflict is not an option. If you've grown comfortable with unresolved conflict, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. Without qualification, if you are comfortable with unresolved conflict in your marriage, you're grieving the Holy Spirit. So what is conflict? Well, there's lots of different Uh, Biblical synonyms, strife, discord, contention, to fight, to quarrel, to dispute. The idea of conflict is to be in a state of hostility with another person, a state of antagonism or animosity. And so a definition, simple definition by Ken Sandy, is conflict happens when you're at odds with another person over what you think, want, or do. Okay. And what's the source of conflict? Well, we actually just read it. James 4, 1 through 3. Okay. So when you think about um, conflict, is it possible in, in a marriage relationship to be in a state of hostility with each other, that is to be in a state of conflict, and actually not even be able to specifically put your finger on what the source is. Have you ever noticed that that can happen? For those of you who have saintly marriages made in heaven, you probably have no idea what I'm talking about, but there there are times where there's just sort of this low-grade fever of hostility. And you're like, where did this come from? Why is it here? Well, the Bible actually gives us the answer. The source of our conflict is right here in James 4, 1 through 3. Um, In a really excellent little book, Healing Contentious Relationships, the writer, last name Parr, 
says, James is saying that quarreling comes from our desires, our wants. Ultimately, we fight because we want things. Quarrels come from us. We fight because we want to become want to become uh, so important that we're willing to sin over it. Kevin DeYoung, quarrels don't just happen. People make them happen. <laughs> right? So there's no such thing as some sort of um, abstract quarrel that somehow invades your marriage. Quarreling comes from our hearts. Okay? It comes from within us. And so notice the cycle that you see there in James Four, your pleasures wage war in your members. Um, New English translation, the Net Bible, has it like this. He says, where do the conflicts and where do the quarrels among you come from? Is it not from this, from your passions that battle inside of you? So the idea is, is that there's something that we want there's something that we are absolutely convinced that this, that if, if I just had this, it would make me happy. Okay? Now, we'll talk about what those possibly can be in a minute, but understand this. It is the want, it is the desire, it is, it is the um, coveting of pleasure or comfort that is the source of the quarrel. One of my favorite quotes from uh, Cornelius Plantinga, not the way it's supposed to be, a breviary of sin. He says this, he says, like a neurotic and therapeutically shelf-worn little god, the human heart keeps ending discussions by insisting that it wants what it wants. And so then, the, the, the next part of the cycle is those desires, those pleasures, those expectations, if you will, go unmet, so then as a result, we go to war. Okay? I don't think James has like literally murdering somebody, right? I think that if you think of the, the way that the Sermon on the Mount impacts and, and influences James' epistle, I think the idea is you, you have a, a murderous spirit or or an angry heart towards someone right and so that's the result so so we go on the war path in a sense and so the NIV says you desire but do not have so you kill you covet but cannot get what you want so you quarrel and you fight and so um, all our desires and passions are, are like an armed camp within us ready at a moment's notice to declare war against anyone who stands in the way of some personal gratification on which we have set our heart. So, the source of conflict is not a circumstance. It's my heart. I remember years ago seeing a um, video uh, series by Paul Tripp. And I won't do it right now uh, like he did. But he took a bottle of water and he takes the lid off and he starts shaking it. Okay. Well, I'll go ahead and do it. Just watch out, Julie. Okay. So, 
So he says, he says, he says, what's happening? Well, the, the water's coming out. Duh. Well, why is it coming out? Well, because it's, it's being shaken. What happens is that circumstances may shake us, but the only thing that comes out is what's already in. Okay, so that's a scary thought when you think about it, because we are great at actually shifting, right? So, well, that person just knows how to push my buttons, or if we wouldn't have had that happen to us, I'm sorry about that. Um, If we wouldn't have had that happen, then we wouldn't have been, uh, we wouldn't have gone in the fight, right? So, so everything, we, we try to put the blame on stuff that is outside of us. But if you've got conflict, you have to say, it's, this is the problem. This is the problem. So what are these desires and what is the war? So let's just face it. The, the idea of desires, right? So thinking of the cycle, you have desires. Those desires go unmet, so you go to war. You kill. What are those desires? Well, they're almost limitless. But let me give you some um, common ones. I just want respect. Who usually says that? Huh? Who usually says that? The husband. Okay? The husband usually says that. Um, Is that a legitimate expectation? It it is. Okay? But you can't demand it. So a desire or an expectation may be legitimate. But if it goes unmet it exposes whether or not it's an idol. Did you get that? It may be a legitimate desire, a legitimate expectation, but if it goes unmet, it will expose whether or not it is an idol. So the minute that you're demanding respect or you're going to war because you're not getting respect... James 4 says, you know what your problem is, buddy? You have an unmet expectation that's causing you to go to war. Okay. What, about, um, what about being loved? Now, I'm going to say that there's, uh, obviously, there's a legitimate sense, right? Husbands love your wives. Is there a legitimate expectation Wives, that your husband would love you? And the answer is yes. But there's two things that you need to think about. One is, what does that love actually look like? You see, we get into, we get into serious trouble if what we think that love looks like is, hey, make much of me. Worship me. Exalt me. All in the name of love me. And then what happens if it's not given in the way that it's expected? 
an idol can be exposed. By the way, husbands are not immune from the desire to be adored and worshipped. Okay? Right? Sometimes men are the biggest babies on the planet. So I'll just, I'll just tell you, and I've told you this before, and I tell you with, with a, a, a degree of shame. So I asked, I asked Ashley the other day, I said, so how many times, we, we were talking, we were having dinner, and I said, how many times do you remember me doing the, the dishes for your mom? Okay. What did you say? You said one time, okay? Now that's a lie, all right? No. <laughs> I did it. I did the dishes at least three times, all right? But each one of those three times, I would, yeah, I'd tell the boys to do it and then take credit for it. But I would do the dishes and then she'd come home and I'd stand there like, you you notice anything? And she just is like going on. I'm like, she's clueless. What, what, what did I want? What I wanted from her was for her to come home and say, oh, dear husband, you did the dishes as an act of service and love to me. Thank you so much. I can't believe, oh, your highness, accept my, accept my thanksgiving and my praise. Okay? And so then if she never, if she didn't notice, which I think she was like three for three for not noticing, okay? And, and so what, what would happen is I'd start to feel slighted because I did a good deed and I wasn't getting the credit that I wanted. I wasn't being extolled like I wanted. Guess what? James 4, 1 to 3, right at work. And so you can have respect as one of those desires. Love. What about sex? It's okay to say, yes, that can be one of those desires. And how do you know that it is an idol? Well, what happens when you have expectations that go unmet? Men are also prolific pouters. What about appearance? I don't understand what's wrong with my husband. Like every other guy in church has a six pack. I want my husband to have a six pack. (laughs) And we can laugh at these things, but I'll tell you what. You can turn the appearance your own appearance or the appearance of your spouse into an idol. Of course, attention um, can also be one of those desires. We don't get the attention that we want. So you know, what, what happens when you're, when you're three and you don't get the attention that you want? You throw a tantrum. What happens when you're 40 and you don't get the attention that you want? Yeah. You throw a more sophisticated tantrum, but it's a tantrum. Well, not everybody's, but you throw a more sophisticated tantrum. Yeah. 
Yes. <laughs> good, good advice. <clears throat> what, about, what about happiness in marriage? Can that be one of those desires of the heart that if you don't get it, you go to war? Is it wrong to want a happy marriage? No. Can a happy marriage become an idol that if you don't get it, you enter into conflict? Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Let me just say something here. We'll, we'll talk about this when we, when we resume this subject. But because marriage is between two people, you may have to actually just reckon with the fact that you'll never have the marriage that you want. You may never have the spouse that you want. The question is, what do you do? Do you murder? Go to war? No. So, there's also um, happiness in marriage, the perfect spouse, right? So all of these things can be a desire for us. And some of these desires are legitimate. Some, some, of these, some desires are not legitimate. You know, if you're in your 50s and you're, you're a, a husband and you're like, you know what, man, when, when we were married, she was 125 pounds. I can't believe that she, she's put on 30 pounds. Well, you, you know what? That's an unrealistic expectation. You understand that? So there are expectations that are unrealistic, but there are also legitimate expectations. The, the, the question is, is when a legitimate expectation is unmet, what do we do? James says, our tendency is to go to war, right? So what about the war? The war is the conflict that goes unresolved and results in, in, in really all kinds of damage when you think about it. Um, and so sometimes, and I know this is not everybody, and I don't, I'm not saying that it is, but sometimes this war results in, in either husband or wife trying to leverage power. Money. These are all, these are all power leverages that you can use in, in, in marriage. Money. Authority. So let me, just, let me just say that, husbands, if you have to say to your wife, hey, I'm the head of this house. Submit to me. You're in far worse shape than you realize. Right? And what are you doing? You're trying to leverage authority. What about... What about using the Bible 
to leverage power against somebody. Have you ever seen it done? It is, by the way, some of the most wicked people in the world will use the Bible to defend their wickedness. You can use money, authority, power, sex. You can use words. Sometimes in a marriage, one spouse is really good with words and the other may not be that quick on their feet with words. And so what can happen is is that uh, in the midst of conflict, the, the one who's good with their words can just start to bombard with words. I'm going to wear you down with all of my arguments. I'm going to wear you down with multiplied words. I'm going to make sure that you don't get a word in edgewise. And if you do, I will cut it down. I will, I will actually, I will put on display my ability to destroy your feeble arguments and humiliate you with my words. You say, that is evil. The war can be heated conflict. The war can be cold and punishing distance. The war can be strategic manipulation. Sometimes spouses are as strategically brilliant as Patton in making sure that they win their war. By the way, if your spouse is not interested in winning the war, but is interested in peace, that ends up giving, let's just say, the rebellious spouse the upper hand if they're using strategic manipulation to get their way. So let's face it. This is all incredibly ugly. Okay? Now, I was trying to find, we had a huge stack of the Peacemaker um, uh, pamphlets, and there's a, a slippery slope to unresolved conflict. Clearly, and I don't have them with me. I'll try to find them and get them to you at some point. But let's face it, all of these things, <clears throat> does unresolved conflict ever just sort of settle in one spot. There's an escalation to it. Unresolved conflict almost always gets worse. You you, you actually can't be uh, at war with somebody and then just say, well, it's just going to remain status quo. It will get worse. It may get just simply incrementally worse. It may end up just being subtly worse, but it will get worse. So conflict 
This is number four in your notes. Conflict is often sinful in origins, but unresolved conflict is often the result of pride and selfishness. When you have conflict, um, what is, what's one of the things that, that we want in conflict? What? I want my way. I want to be right. How many, don't, don't, don't raise your hand, but how many when you're in conflict, it's like, I want to, I want to make sure that they know I'm right. And I'm willing, <clears throat> I'm willing to just about kill for this. Why? Because at the end of the day, in conflict, I want to win. And what does it look like for me to win? It looks like for me to be right. It looks like for me to get my way. What do we really want in the conflict? We want unconditional surrender. We want the other person to grovel when they realize how right I am and how wrong they are. Nothing nothing short of groveling is going to do. Sometimes what we want in conflict is actually just the other person to hurt. We feel like we've been hurt, and what we want is for them to feel what we feel. At the end of the day, in conflict, we often just simply don't even, we don't want to be humble, right? We don't want to be humble. Think about conflict for a second and then think about what a good dose of humility would do in the midst of that conflict. Do you not think that that would actually go a really long way to actually resolving the conflict? Just humility. Right? So humility, if, if, if humility is the path to reconciliation, then what is, what is the path to continued conflict? It's pride. By the way, the scriptures teach us this. Proverbs 13.10, through insolence, that's the NAS. Insolence is, um, think of it as pride on steroids. Proud pride. Through insolence comes nothing but strife. Why is it? Because the proud person wants to win. The proud person wants their way. The proud person wants to be right. 1 Timothy 6, 4, talking about false teachers, says he's conceited, he understands nothing, he has a morbid interest in controversial questions, disputes about words, out of which arise envy, strife, abusive language, and evil suspicions. 
So it's not just a matter of, in my, in my pride, I want to be right. In my pride, I want to win. But there's also this, this sense that my pride starts to lead me down the path that, that, that really, what's happening here is a grand conspiracy. You start to become utterly suspicious of the other person's motives. You start to analyze and overanalyze each and every word and argument. Humility does what? Humility actually puts the other person above me. Humility actually says that um, I should give the person the benefit of the doubt. What does pride do? Pride says I am right, and I'm right in such a way that I actually know the motives and the thoughts of your heart. So how do we resolve conflict? Well, you can take Tony's advice. When she says, get over it or get over yourself, you just do it. So this is, this, is, this is something that requires a lot more attention than we can give it today. But if, if this helps you start in the right direction of either helping yourself or your spouse or helping somebody else, then, then, then that's great. So if we, if we have a miserable marriage, we're dealing with somebody that has a miserable marriage... It's right to want to see the marriage change. Okay? Okay. But what that usually means is that I want my spouse to change. So there's, there's a legitimate desire to actually want your marriage to change if it's miserable or it's struggling or whatever. And... What we normally mean by this, and this is, this is the important part, what we normally mean by this is, I want my marriage to change, ha, huh, I want him to change. I want her to change. If, if they would just change, we could have a better marriage. So this is the painful part. <laughs> As if none of uh, this far has been painful. True, resol- uh, true resolution in conflict is not going to happen until I want to change. And if your first thought was, well, you don't know my spouse, I want to say, you don't know yourself. first step in genuine resolution is that I need to change. Now, are there exceptions? And the answer is, of course, there are exceptions. But on the whole, marriage change doesn't happen until I realize that change has to start with me. And so I have to want, uh, I, I want a marriage that glorifies God, right? You want a marriage that glorifies God? 
Okay. I believe you. You know what you need to want more than a marriage that glorifies God? You have to want to be living a life that's glorifying God. Your control over the marriage is limited. And so your primary concern has to be, God, change me. I want a marriage that glorifies God. Amen. Wonderful. You should. But you know what it looks like when you start? It's like, Lord, let my life glorify you. Now, what does that look like? That looks like the way that I start treating my spouse and other people, by the way. So I, have to, I, I must want a marriage that glorifies God, but more than that, I need to want it to be the spouse who honors and glorifies God. Okay, okay so now in 13 minutes, we're going to do Matthew chapter 7, all right? Matthew chapter 7. So I've given you... One classic text that you need to be familiar with in your marriage, James 4, 1 to 3. Here is another one. You go, I know this one. It's the Sermon on the Mount. I've read it a thousand times. How well are you doing it? I'd rather you have it only read 10 times and actually practice it than than 10,000 times and not do any of it. So here's, here's the, the text, famous text, 7-1, do not judge so you'll not be judged, for in the way that you judge, you will be judged, and by your standard of measure, it will be measured to you. Why do you look at the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, and behold, the log it is, is in your eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, then you'll see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give what is holy to dogs, and do not throw your pearls before swine, or they will trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. So, so if, if I'm convinced, okay, so I, I got to work on me. I have to work on, on my growth, my sanctification, my life as it glorifies God. And I want to actually move forward in marriage, reconciliation, restoration. I want to see, I want to see not just me trying to live my life for the glory of God. I want to see us doing this together for God, then this is where we start. First of all, self-distrust and self-examination. I'm going to say it a thousand times, okay? Or just take what I'm about to say and then multiply it a thousand times, okay? As long as you think that your marriage will not change until your spouse changes, your marriage will never change. You have to start with your self. So I have to ask. So these are the questions. These are the diagnostic questions. What is it that I want that I'm not getting that's making me go to war? There were, I don't have time for this, but I'll tell you anyway. There were two, three pivotal moments in, in our marriage. And one of them was about maybe 2005, 2006. And I was reading Paul Tripp's uh, Instruments in the Redeemer's Hands, and chapter 5 is on James chapter 4, 
and I'm being utterly convicted. So I'm reading it so that I can help other people, right? And, it's, and, and God's doing a work in me. And I thought, why, why do I get frustrated with Ariel so quickly? She is, she is a wonderful mom. She's a, she's a great wife. She's incredibly con, uh, competent. She's joyful. What, what is it? And I start asking myself in light of what is it that I'm not getting that I want that makes me, that, that makes me have this, this underlying conflict towards her, this attitude. And I start to realize I have set up certain certain idols in my life that that are not that I'm not getting and and I'm in turn blaming her. So what did I want? I wanted to go to work and spend all day working and I wanted to come home and I wanted to come home to peace, quiet, reverence A Diet Pepsi in a Giants game. That's what I wanted. And instead, I'd get home, and the house would be messy, and Alex wouldn't have done his homework, and I walk in the door, and the first thing I get is, you need to talk to him because I'm at my wit's end. And I'm like, I I just want a Pepsi. I just want to watch the Giants game. I just, I don't want to do this. And I'm thinking, why can't you take care of this? And I start to feel resentful. Well, guess what happens? Resentment grows. And it turns into this low-grade fever conflict that is not rooted in any one individual thing. It's just this. And all of a sudden, I started to realize, and this, I, uh, this is going to sound totally stupid to you, but I started to realize, you know what your problem is, Brian? Is that you expect Ariel to love you as a sinner, but you've not lo- learned to love her as a sinner. And I'm not saying that she was sinning by not having beat Alex into submission or anything like that, all right? I'm just saying, I, I had this expectation that my home was going to be in, 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 in a certain kind of order, and I was putting all of that on her, and when it wasn't met, I felt absolutely resentful when I would come home. Just learn to love her as a struggling mom that's got three kids. One which always did their homework and the other two never did their homework. Right? What, what is it that I'm not getting that's making me go to war? You can ask yourself that question prayerfully and honestly. And I can promise you'll come up with an answer. Then, not only what is it that I want, but then how am I waging this war? What am I doing to, uh, in a sense, perpetuate the conflict? What am I doing to perpetuate the problem? And if I can't think of anything, I'm not thinking hard enough. So for me, coming home, what, how did I wage the war? By being irritable. 
When I, when I actually stop and think about the, the, the atmosphere of our home, and it wasn't every day, okay? But when I think about the atmosphere of our home and think there, there were so many times where it was like, okay, we use the expression, walk on eggshells. That was absolute sin. It was coming from me. And I waged the war by irritability. Number three, how am I judging my spouse in this conflict? Mm, Boy, isn't that a good question? Have you ever actually stopped? How am I judging my spouse in this conflict? Am I pretending to know their motives? Am I pretending to actually understand everything that they've said? How am I judging them? Why is that important? Because Jesus actually says this thing that you should actually remember. Um, Don't judge lest you be judged. And you need to understand that the same measurement by which you judge other people is the same measurement by which you'll be judged. So do you really, do you really want to be judged by the standard that you're using to judge your spouse? Well, let's just face it. Most of the time, most of us are harder on other people than we ever are on ourselves. And you go, oh, but you don't understand how hard I am on myself. I want to say baloney. Baloney. We are harder on other people more than we're hard on ourselves. How do I know that? We don't, we don't typically punish ourselves in the same way that we punish other people. Right. And then, where is my sin in this? Oh my goodness, what another question. Where is my sin in this? Where in the world would I get that from Matthew chapter 7? It's like, so I think that when Jesus was saying this, I think people laughed, right? So you're going to go and get the speck out of your brother's eye, but you've got this massive beam in your eye. Well, you can't even see, right? And if you push the imagery a little bit, and you've got this beam, and you're like, oh, I, I, see that, I see that speck. Let me take care of it. Wham, wham, wham. Sorry, Julie, you're getting the brunt of everything today. But, uh, <laughs> yes, Ray's not here, so I'll fill in. Um, <laughs> you bludgeon the other person while you're trying to get the speck out. Jesus says, you hypocrite, take the log out of your eye. By the way, if you say they're the one with the lock, I've just got the speck. I I don't think that's going to hold up on judgment day. Lord, I just had a speck. They're the one that had the log. I did my best. Take the log out of your own eye. Now, I want to say that if you're in a tough marriage, this is, there's a vulnerability here, isn't there? There's a vulnerability. 
the vulnerability comes down to this. If I take the log out of my eye, what if they don't reciprocate? If I examine myself and I see the sin in my life, what if they don't reciprocate? It makes us feel vulnerable, right? So you ask yourself, where is my sin in this? And then, and we'll talk more about this in, uh, in, in a few months, confession and repentance. I own my sin. Full responsibility. Right? I don't say, I confess that I did this, but... Don't put a but in there, okay? Or an if only. I know I'm guilty of this, but if only, right? Just own it. Just own it. And you say, but it's, it's, it's intertwined with, with their sin, and well, probably, <laughs> pretty good chance, But you've got to own your sin. And you've got to own it in a way that is, it's not, it's not intricately connected to their sin. Because then when you're confessing, what you're doing is you're confessing your sin, but you're putting conditions on that confession as long as they confess their sin. So super hard, need a lot of grace, forget their sin and just own your sin. Now, I make an unqualified confession. I was going to go over the seven A's of confession, but we don't have time. And I repent before God and my spouse. Now, this is the the tricky part. Response. If the spouse is a Christian, they'll respond with grace. Grace. Be kind, tender-hearted towards one another, forgiving one another, just as God in Christ has forgiven you. And oftentimes what happens is that in owning our sin, confessing our sin, repenting of our sin, it leads them to do the same. Warning. Don't confess and repent of your sin because you're simply trying to get them to confess and repent of their sin. At the end of the day, I don't think that constitutes legitimate confession and repentance if there's the ulterior motive of getting them to do the same. But if they're a Christian, of course, they will oftentimes respond in kind. And then when this happens, reconciliation has happened, and now we have to be on guard, right? We have to guard our hearts that these, we have to learn from these things. So I would just I would point you back to the two lessons that we did on what does it look like when we forgive and then tell you that in the future we'll talk about lessons on guarding against conflict. Okay. So in other words, it, it, there may be patterns in your marriage that lead to the conflict pretty easily and you may resolve a conflict with confession and repentance and and reconciliation but there's actually something that goes beyond that and that is I have to learn about what's going on in here that's causing the wars right but what if you what if you confess 
you repent, you're genuinely seeking reconciliation, you're genuinely seeking peace, and your spouse turns around and weaponizes your confession and your repentance. See, that's what we want to protect ourselves against. Okay? And, and I'm not saying that in a virtuous way. Okay? That's, that's what we want to protect ourselves against. And, and the reality is, is that you have to take that step of, of utter vulnerability, realizing that your spouse may not respond in kind. Now, if there, is there a chance that you will say, you know, this is what I did, this is how I contributed to this mess, I am so sorry, please forgive me, I was wrong, I, I've taken this to the Lord, I'm asking you to forgive me. Is it possible that you may be married to a person who operating with, with wisdom from below, which is earthy and demonic, may say, yep, I knew it. I knew it. I'm so glad you finally came to realize that you are the problem. Is it possible that that could happen? Of course it's possible that it could happen. And so if, if that happens, let me just say a couple of things. One, <clears throat> reciprocation may be slower than we want it to be, so be patient. In other words, you, the, the, the response that you're hoping for may not actually come to fruition right away. Be patient. If there's been a lot of hurt, there's been a lot of pain, and, and, and the person, and the person maybe, maybe they're a little skeptical about your confession and your repentance. Okay, Be patient. They may not reciprocate as quickly as you want them to. But your path, if you're dealing with your heart, your path is is clear. Is it not? Scripturally, is not your path of walking in God's ways and in peace, is that not clear? And the answer is, of course it's clear. And so you give time. But what if, what if, It's never reciprocated, and in turn, it is weaponized. You know what I mean by that, right? You know how to weaponize somebody's confession and repentance. You turn around and use it against them. And you use it against them in a way so that you don't have to confess and repent anything. That's the case. If there's been genuine humility... in seeking resolution, but then it is utterly rejected. In other words, the person does not want peace. Then that's another problem. And it's a significant problem. And those who are for war... may need to be dealt with in other ways. Okay? And there may be times where other avenues are necessary. Okay? Getting 
somebody else involved, getting the elders involved. Maybe church discipline ends up being the path. We don't know. But here's the thing, is that my path forward of glorifying God is clear whether they reciprocate or not. Is it hard to show grace when you're not receiving any grace? Of course it is. Is it hard to be at peace when they're for war? Of course it is. But I don't know about you, but I, I believe actually in a, in a very powerful God who is more than willing to give me the grace that I need to endure really difficult situations, and maybe it is in that very endurance that God softens the other person's heart, okay? So, we went way over time, but <clears throat> I didn't want to just stop with... Um, Where's my sin in this? And then leave you to just stew in it for the the next four months, right? So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've brought about the greatest reconciliation through the death of your son. And we thank you that we have peace with you. And we pray that we would be at peace with each other. And Father, we pray for those hard marriages. And we ask that you would do exceedingly abundantly above all we could ask or think. And we pray that you would do it for your glory through Jesus Christ in the church. Amen. We hope that you were edified by this message. For additional sermons as well as information on giving to the ministry of Grace Community Church, please visit us online at gracenevada.com. That's gracenevada.com.